All Year I Dream About Gaming Conventions. Welcome everyone to All Year I Dream About Gaming Conventions, the podcast you didn't know you needed about Gen Con, Origins Game Fair, PAX Unplugged, and beyond. I'm your host, Quarex. And I'm your other host, Ben. Hey there, dreamers. We're back with probably our favorite subject and why we started this podcast, Gen Con. Yay! On February the 11th, we could finally buy badges for this year's Gen Con. Quarex, how was your experience getting your badge this year? Oh my gosh. So, I mean, okay, it was fine. I have my badge. Everything's fine. But man, I was already in a Starbucks because my hotel wouldn't give me an hour extension just to stick around later and sign up. And my laptop battery was at like 30 minutes left and there were no outlets and the web page was crashing. And I was like, I'm going to die. I'm just going to immediately pass out and die because this is not supposed to be the least bit frustrating. Just buying your stupid badge. You know what? I got the badge. It was great. Other than the fact that clearly they need to uh, work on their webpage as every year. That almost sounds like a Gen Con version of that intro to uh, Blues Brothers. How does that go? So uh, so you were 106 miles to Chicago. Uh, you had a mostly empty battery of laptop. Uh, I don't believe any cigarettes, but probably some amount of coffee. I had some brie. That's basically the same thing. It, it was midday, and I don't think I've ever seen you wear sunglasses. I, w- I was actually wearing sunglasses. I was sitting in the sunniest possible seat. Everything else was taken. So I literally was living my best Blues Brothers life while trying to get my badge. So while you were Quarex on the spot, I, I, I took my time. You know what? Uh, I've been around the block enough, and I realized that any time Gen Con tries to do something for everybody on its website, it's going <laughs> to crash. And it sounded like it crashed in hard. So I waited a little bit until, uh, you know, I was home and uh, sat down with my laptop charger already in the wall and uh, got my badge. Uh, So I am all ready for our next big event, which is Quarex. Next big event? You mean to get your badge in time for the housing lottery on Sunday the 25th? If you haven't gotten your badge yet, if you're even slower than I am. If you want that golden ticket, remember, this Sunday's the housing lottery, so you need to get your badge by Friday. On the topic of Gen Con, we have our second guest in the history of this podcast, and quite the illustrious guest we have. His name's Matt Shoemaker, and as you go through, he's got a, he's got a lot of cool stuff going on, whether it's stuff he's doing on his own or stuff he's doing for Gen Con. He's a gamer. Based on what we know about him, we know he's played board games and RPGs dating back to the 1980s, and that he recently helped start the Philadelphia Area Gaming Exposition. He's also a game designer. He's the owner and principal of Hit Him With A Shoe Games, which has published such illustrious games as Bee Lives, We Will Only Know Summer. Uh, it's a medium-weight Euro game with resource management and worker placement mechanics that can also be used for educational purposes. And there's Dirt Dog, the card game where players lead their dog through underground burrows to try and track down their quarry. Most recently, there's the Red Bernus, a cooperative court game where you and your fellow players fend off the French armies invading Algeria in 1857. These rules have been translated into German and, surprisingly, French, and it was recently nominated for the Charles S. Roberts Award for Best Early Modern War Game. Matt. Hit him with a shoe.com. Can you tell us about some of these board games? 
Yeah, Bee Lives was the first game that we decided to develop and kind of kicked off the whole thing. And it was a game that I wanted to design because I'd been a beekeeper for 10 years on the side and really wanted to kind of bring in some game that could educate people about bees. So what I wanted to do was take board gamers and make them think like a super organism. So instead of thinking about individuals, they had to think about being a body of 40,000 bees and trying to survive and what that was like. And Dirt Dog. I actually have Dirt Dog. I think you designed this with your wife. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. My wife and I designed this. This was a much fun, lighter game. I mean, we designed it so kids can play it as well. And it was basically just kind of a love letter to our dachshunds that we have and the dog sport of Earth Dog, where you train your dogs to go through underground tunnels to catch badgers and other underground creatures like that. That was a fun little project. Here's what I've just realized and I'm concerned about. So you've based your games on your bee collection and your dachshunds. What do we not know about you and the French army invading Algeria in 1857? <laughs> well, what you don't know is that I spent graduate school studying it. If you're interested in any of these games, uh, you can check them out at hitemwithashoe.com. You know what? It's, it's going to be linked to the show notes. So uh, go look at the show notes. Hitemwithashoenote.com. In addition to being a gamer and a game designer, he's also an archivist. One of the coolest things that I think he's worked on, and that's saying a lot considering everything we're going to go through here, is he helped set up and run a website called The Best 50 Years in Gaming. Matt, what can our dreamers use the website for? Yeah, so this was a project we worked with Gen Con on for the 50th way back in 2017. You uh, were attending back then. You were lucky because it was one of the best Gen Cons ever. Yeah, but with the project on here, what the goal of it was was to digitize every single Gen Con program that, or whatever there was because there weren't programs in the early days from 1968 all the way through 2017 and put the events from every one of those years into a kind of like a library catalog so you could search through the entire history of Gen Con and see what events took place in what years, see the history of of gaming through Gen Con and just generally immerse yourself in the history of Gen Con and maybe even relive, or not relive, but, you know, think about what it could have been like if you could have attended, say, the 1982 Gen Con um, where Dukes and the Dragons were serenading everybody about TSR products and they had a crazy robot that was insulting children and kissing women. So it's been a great, great run and this site can help you relive some of those moments. My favorite thing about the site, honestly, is the, uh, the what is it called when there's a map and it's also a temporal experience? The, like, chronological map of all the Gen Cons, because there have been, like, 20 different ones around the world. Yeah, the site also has a timeline, which is what Quarix is talking about. That's what it's called, a timeline, but it's also a map, a map timeline. It shows you where every Gen Con took place and what years it took place, and it has little write-ups about some of them. Some of them, there isn't a lot of info, like Gen Con Benelux. Yeah, it happened. There was <laughs> one in Central Europe, but I couldn't tell you what took place there. Probably waffles. Yes. <laughs> that would make sense. You know, one thing that I like to use this site for is if I can't remember what I did last year and Gen Con has already wiped my previous schedule for, I can go in and I can search in 2019 or 2021 and get an idea as to what the event might have been. Occasionally I have to recycle stuff for events that I run and that can be also helpful to, to pull that down. So if you want to see what was done last year and maybe remember what you did in previous years while putting together your schedule for the coming year, that's another great thing this website's useful for. 
A little birdie whispered in my ear that there may be some sort of forthcoming article from a Analog Games journal about the best 50 years in gaming. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you heard recently that there is a researcher who used the site to delve into Gen Con and using the, the 50 Games site to kind of give a longitudinal study of what D&D and other games over the years ha- can teach us about gamers and gaming. So I don't know more than that's that, awesome. but it should be forthcoming soon in Analog Game Studies. But that transitions into his actual real-life job when he's not busy playing elf and or dog games. He's an academic. Matt has a Master in Arts and History focused on the French Empire North Africa, critical for designing a good Red Bernoose game, as well as a Master of Library, as well as a Master of Library and Information Science with a concentration in archives, both of which he got from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And he's currently the head of the Loretta C. Duckworth Scholar Studio at Temple University. He wrote a chapter in the book Feminist War Games, Mechanisms of War, Feminist Values, and Interventional Games in the book, an overview of the history and design of tabletop war games in relation to gender, from tactics to strategy. He's also working with colleagues from Temple University to peer-review board games as part of a pilot project, which seems to be fairly unique uh, within academia. I would not want to have my board game ripped apart by academics, but, you know, it's still a useful service. And he's currently working on a book about, can you guess? Origins Game Fair. Okay, well, that does count as a guess, but I think we both know that's not true. People hitting like and subscribe. Hold on, I have something to pitch to my publisher, but no. The Geneva Convention. Ooh, judges? Okay, we're actually going to give that to you, because it is a book about Gen Con. He has been conducting interviews with organizers, hosts, designers, A lot of people involved at all with the convention. I mean, I've talked to him about it, and what do I know? Just a lot of stuff about what I remember. But he's done the work, man. This is going to be good stuff. Matt, can you tell us a little bit about what what you're doing so far and where you are at in the process currently? The book's been going on, and it's really, while I've interviewed, as Corex talked about, several dozens people for this project, I'm also taking a deep dive into the text about the book, or not about the book, but about the convention. So I've reached back into old zines, letters, Usenet, all kinds of places to dig up everything I could about what people were talking about Gen Con, the year it happened, and kind of distill it down into kind of a year-by-year take. And not only am I uh, looking at the convention, but I'm looking at how Gen Con fits within how tabletop gaming has evolved in the United States over the past, what was it, 56 years Gen Con's been around? I forget now. Matt is also a longtime Gen Con attendee. And, you know, if you're going to write a book on Gen Con, you're either Robin D. Laws, a longtime attendee, or both. Matt, can you tell us about your first Gen Con? When was it? My first Gen Con was 1992, and I was all of 12 years old when that happened. So I unfortunately don't have a lot of memories of it. I remember going with <laughs> with my father and having a good time, and my dad must have thought I had a good time because we kept going back. The first Gen Con I really remember was 1994 when the CCG craze hit, and I remember playing something like, I don't know, 50 demo games of Spellfire and scamming TSR out of dozens of starter decks, because back at that convention, every time you did a demo of Spellfire, you got a starter deck for the game for free. So my, I guess, 14-year-old self at the time had no money and was super addicted to cards already, even though it was my first time seeing them at this Gen Con, and had to keep going back for more. 14-year-old, you wouldn't have had as fun a time at uh, Gen Con 2023 with Lorcana, it sounds like. Ooh, 
Oh, no, probably not. Would not have enjoyed standing in lines, almost getting run over like that poor handicapped woman did this year. Yeah, that does not sound like 14-year-old me would have enjoyed that. What keeps you coming back to Gen Con? Well, a lot of it is just that it's ingrained into like who I am. I mean, gaming was an <laughs> early and big part of me. I mean, I've been, I started playing D&D when I was eight years old. It's how I made and kept a lot of friendships back then in the school days. And then, you know, being the lucky child I was who lived in a suburb of Milwaukee, you know, it was easy to attend every year until it left in two th- after 2002. Uh, a lot of it goes to that, although I did have a good gap after it left Milwaukee because I was a little, you know, I was both poor and also, you know, disgruntled that it had to leave my home state. But I did eventually go back in 2008 and then also after I moved out to Philadelphia in uh, the early 2010s and really kind of reconnected with my uh, Gen Con past and the the socialness of it and the kind of what I really loved was just the kind of energy drink fueled gaming sessions that happened where you were just on for, you know, 20 hours a day, getting four hours of sleep, doing nothing but consuming gaming, gameplay, books, the exhibit hall, the drama that people are getting into between there, people passed out in the hallways, whatever it is. I love it all. Dreamers disclaimer, we have to remind you about the 621 rule here. We do not support Matt's uh, assertion that you should game 20 hours a day and fall asleep in the middle of uh in in the middle of the hallway. I, I do want to oh, say, as oh. I've gotten older, that is not how I enjoy Gen Con anymore. I usually get a full eight hours right. of sleep. So Matt, you're writing the book on Gen Con, so you probably have some opinions about the different eras. What is the most important year for Gen Con? Yes, there's definitely se- several years that are important for the convention itself, but I think the one that is the most important for the future of Gen Con, as well as kind of the whole state of the gaming industry today, has to be 1993. And pray tell, why is that? Well, it's pretty simple. It's because uh, the game Magic the Gathering was released, uh, well, it was sort of released at Gen Con this year. Technically, it was shown at Origins, but Gen Con is the first time it was available for sale. And there was a run on the game. No one knew how popular it was going to be. But by the end of the convention, it did well enough that it convinced Peter Atkinson to give up his job at Boeing and concentrate full-time on Wizards of the Coast. And this really set up the rise of Wizards of the Coast, the rise of CCGs, and ultimately Wizards of the Coast acquiring TSR, Dungeons & Dragons, and for what we care about most, Gen Con. Um, And then, as we all know, Peter eventually sold Gen Con to Hasbro and then rebought it and is currently running it. And none of that would have been possible without Gen Con 1993. Because back then, Gen Con was kind of the place to launch your games. The internet was barely a thing. There was no Kickstarter uh, if you were going to be a game that made it, you made it at Gen Con. Are you telling me that Gen Con is no longer the place to launch your games? I could I could just buy these things from Amazon instead of the dealer hall? I mean, you could. I don't know why you'd want to. I mean, everyone wants to buy their games at Gen Con. But yeah, these days you got options. Um, I mean, why do you think... Heresy averted. This is near and dear to my heart. We've actually talked about this issue before, and I know you have done way more research, like actual research into this than I have, but can you discuss the way, like, the city itself interacted with the attendees, kind of like Milwaukee versus Indianapolis? I guess just start with Milwaukee. Anyone who's been attending Gen Con knows that everybody says the people of Indianapolis are way more welcoming to Gen Con attendees than Milwaukee was, but I'm not entirely convinced that's true. You were a townie. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, of course, he he wasn't prejudiced against the attendees. I'm, I'm basing this on the research I've been doing. This is not my personal opinion. I mean, it is my personal opinion, but it's based on the readings that I have done from the Milwaukee era, from Gen Con attendees, and what they reported at the time of what they felt about their reception at Milwaukee. Sure, sure thing, Tony. <laughs> so in Milwaukee, a lot of the businesses really liked Gen Con attendees. They were open late. Some of the restaurants, particularly the Safe House, was very welcoming. They even let uh, mm -hmm. LARPs and other games take place there. The mayor of Milwaukee came to Gen Con once for a publicity stunt to tout how good the convention was for the city. And uh, people generally felt welcomed by the local businesses. Where there were some hiccups, and this is where I think the problem with comparing Milwaukee to Indianapolis is, is with how they were treated by the locals. And there's some reasons why I think people might have been a little more harsh from Milwaukee, mostly just due to how nerddom was not really accepted in American culture at the time. And some people just didn't know what to make of Gen Con attendees and may have been a little standoffish. There's also kind of this weird thing where the businesses seemed like they liked the people, but they really just liked their money. There's a lovely quote I have from a newspaper article from one of the hotels that says, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's something along the lines of Gen Con attendees. They're great. We love them. They spend lots of money. <laughs> That's kind of the, uh, the end of that quote. And it kind of sums up what it was in Milwaukee. But you get to Indianapolis, and it's really not that much different. A lot of the businesses the first year that were there didn't know what to make a Gen Con. They didn't have enough food. They sold out of food before the weekend was over, and they didn't know what to do. But then quickly, some of them, like the Ram in particular, started doing things like being open 24 hours a day for attendees, letting people game there all night, and the businesses really welcomed people. But then the locals, particularly some of like the Colts fans and things, didn't really understand what these gamers were doing in their city. There's this one absolutely horrendous article I've read from, I, I think it was 2006 or 2007, um, that talks about just how different the gamers are from most Indianapolis locals, and particularly Indianapolis sports fans. Um, and it was very clear from that that a lot of the locals didn't necessarily like the gamers that were coming to their city, or at the very least, if they did not not like them, they at least uh, didn't understand them and thought they were a little weird. The other big difference, I think, is that Milwaukee... Uh, really wasn't focused on convention income to drive the city where Indianapolis was. The Indianapolis newspapers are all about promoting all of their conventions, not just Gen Con, but everything there, and talking about how important they are for the health and economy of the city. Milwaukee never did that. So for that in line, I think Indianapolis, the businesses in particular, had an incentive to be more welcoming to Gen Con attendees, and at least from the business side, make them feel like Indianapolis was their second home, where Milwaukee didn't necessarily feel the need to do that in the 90s. I can also imagine that the the upswing of nerd culture and Marvel Cinematic Universe and explosion of uh, things, D&D &D stopped being a hobby where you needed three friends who could keep a secret. <laughs> that uh, it makes it e it's, it's an easier business sell when suddenly 80,000 know, 80, gamers show up at your... Uh, city yes, for a weekend and spend a, a, a lot of money. I I'm one of the people as 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 Matt knows that has an anecdote out there about Milwaukee versus Indianapolis, and I I accept the framing that really it probably was just the pervasive attitude towards nerds in general, 
that caused my problem. My problem being I showed up in a kilt and like, you know, full Scottish regalia, not just a kilt. Like clearly I was doing a thing, right? And I went to the mall food court in Milwaukee and I walked up to the counter and the employees saw me and went back to the kitchen and refused to come out. Now, to me, that was always Milwaukee hates Gen Con, but really it was probably, it's 2002 and I'm a little bit too far over the edge of what they will accept socially at that point. Ten years later in Milwaukee, maybe the same thing wouldn't have happened. So Yeah, I think yeah. that's definitely it. Yeah, but Milwaukee, I mean, Milwaukee's got a big gamer culture. It has way more game stores than a lot of cities I'm aware of. I mean, general, it seems relatively accepting even back then. I mean, like you said, I was a townie, so I had a different perspective on things. But um, there, at least at the time, there were way more game stores in Milwaukee than there were in Indianapolis. So they would have been more used to it. Um, but like you said, I think the change in perspective on nerds and culture in general that happened in the after 2005 really kind of helped change and shape things as well. Yeah, I just went with the that was that being when the move happened. Also, it yeah it makes it look like there was a bigger difference than there probably was. There you go. We've solved the problem. Thank you, Matt. You did it. So, Matt, what are you most excited about for Gen Con 2024? Well, it has to be the 50th anniversary of Dungeons and Dragons. I don't. Oh God, yeah. I don't know exactly what's going to happen at Gen Con this year. I know they have things planned. Um, I know Wizards has things planned. I was excited in 2023 to see Wizards come back in a bigger way for Gen Con. They still didn't have an exhibit hall presence, but, you know, they had, I forget what it was called, but they had that ice cream truck. They had... Wizards of the Cones. Yeah, Wizards of the Cones. They just had more stuff at Gen (laughs) Con, and I think they're going to ramp that up for this year for the 50th anniversary. I don't know if they're going to continue that presence after the 50th, but if it's there this year, I'm there for Mm. it. Yeah, I'm super stoked about that. I hear that. Any convention I go to this year, I'm kind of hoping. We've talked about how awesome Matt is, but you know what the most important thing is? He's a dreamer, just like you. Matt, thank you for listening to our podcast. Thank you for supporting our podcast. Thank you for joining us. How can our dreamers find you? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, I think the uh, best way to follow up what I'm doing is my website, hitinwithashoe.com, for my publishing company. And uh, I also sometimes put stuff up on our blog at the Loretta C. Duckworth Scholar Studio. So if you find that... Links in the show notes, baby. Yeah, in the show notes. Check the (laughs) show notes. Um, You can see what we're doing there. I will probably update on things like the game initiatives we're taking at Temple University, the peer review board game project, um, as well as I'll probably talk about the book I'm doing when it gets further along. All right. Well, that's it for now. Come Sunday... Quarks and I are going to be recording in the afternoon as we talk about the debacle, the yearly debacle that is the housing portal. And (laughs) if you got screwed, what you can do to get unscrewed. Greetings from the end of the episode, weary traveler. Perhaps you would like to examine my social media wares, all gathered at linktr.ee slash dreamaboutgamingconventions. We sell everything, from Instagram to Facebook to YouTube. Soon we may have whatever tip jar the kids are using these days. All music for this episode was composed by Quarex. Except for Adidas, courtesy freemidi.org. All editing for this episode was by Ben.